Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. We're at week six, church, of our series that's called The Third. It's really just a, a walk through the Bible in reference to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've picked up on that. We've started in Genesis and went all the way through the Judges and kind of highlighted some real uh, high points where the Holy Spirit was at work through the Old Testament. And last week we reached the New Testament and, and how the Holy Spirit, the Hagios Numa, right? If you remember that, the holy, awe-inspiring Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, which we understand to be one God expressing himself through three distinct personalities. And how he was at work, the Holy Spirit, in the life of Jesus. So this morning, we are going to continue down that road. We left off Sunday at the baptism of Jesus, an event that can be found recorded in all four Gospels. And we see in that event the Holy Spirit descending, if you remember, like a dove and resting upon Jesus. And this is significant because all that Jesus did, and hear me, church, all that he did, from the supernatural teachings to the miracles he performed, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. So why is that so significant? When he stepped out of heaven and became a man, he laid aside and limited his rights as God. It's so important for us to understand that because it makes all the difference in the world to us. If you understand that Jesus did what he did while he was on this earth, it, when he, when he uh, performed the miracles in his ministry, all of those things that he did, not counting dying on the cross for our sins, right? But everything else that he did, he wasn't doing out of his own power as God the Son. He had laid his rights down. He laid them aside. And he operated in the power of the Spirit. Why is that important? Because you and I can operate in the same power. Let that wrap around your brain. If he would have come as the Son of God, which he did, he was 100% man, 100% God, right? But if he came just as God and he did everything he did out of his own deity, then we could celebrate it and we could love it, but we couldn't step into the same things that he stepped into. We couldn't do greater works, as he put it, than he even did. And I love thinking about this because church... That means we're not going to be on the level with Jesus as far as, as is up here as, as God or as deity, but we can be his hands and feet, and we can do miraculous and wonderful and powerful things in his name. I mean, when's the last time you laid hands on a blind man or woman, a blind person, and they saw? Jesus did it. Well, he was the son of God. No, that's not right. He denied himself of that power, and he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why that's, why, that's, why that's so significant, because we can too. He wanted to be an example to us, and again, he said that we would do even greater works than he did, because we too have access to the Holy Spirit. So the very next time, then, that we see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the life of Jesus is in Matthew 
4.1 and Mark 1.12 and Luke 4.1. I'm going to read them all to you because it's significant. And, you know, I, I was... Uh, I want to get through series sometimes pretty quickly, but this was significant enough that we're going to camp out here all morning, well, until I'm done. Okay, it'll be a shorter sermon today. But I, I want you to, to, to be able to grasp this and think about it and have something to talk about uh, over lunch and, and maybe throughout the week with your family and, and just think about this because it, it, really is, it really is a cool scripture. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led. This is right after his baptism. Right after. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the hagios pneuma in the Greek as we talked about last week. The Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Interesting verse. Awesome verse. Interesting verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark 1.12 says, The Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Drove him into the wilderness. How many have ever been in the wilderness? How many have ever felt like you've been in the wilderness? The Spirit not only led him, in Mark it uses stronger language, it drove him into the wilderness. Luke 4.1 and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit again, into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He took him to the wilderness. This is a tough scripture because it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it, it doesn't seem like the typical behavior of God, the Holy Spirit, does it? To lead someone into temptation to lead them to a place where they will be tempted. But we have to understand a few things. The word temptation here is better understood as tested or proved. And the Holy Spirit did not and does not tempt anyone. Turn to your neighbor and say, the Holy Spirit don't tempt anybody. He doesn't tempt anybody. The devil is the one that tempts. But the Spirit of God led Jesus to the temptation that occurred. It's, it's, it's interesting because right after Jesus identified himself with sinful humanity by being water baptized by John, which, if you remember last week, was a baptism of repentance. We don't baptize in water the same way John did. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. When we baptize in water, it's a baptism into the name of Jesus, into the name of God. It's a picture of what we've already done, what's already been done in our hearts. We accepted Christ. We died to ourselves. The, 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 the baptismal is like a grave. You go down into the grave and you come up new life. But that's already happened when you accepted Jesus. It's just a picture of what's already occurred. It's a public confession of your faith. And why am I talking about baptism that way? Because in a couple of weeks, we're going to baptize 32 people. All right? On Easter Sunday. And you don't want to miss it. And I want you to understand what it is. It's not the same thing as John's baptism. It's a different baptism. His was a baptism of repentance. But the Holy Spirit led, even drove Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As followers of Christ, we have a desire, I think, I think all of us do, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Does anyone not want to be led by the Holy Spirit in here to this morning? Yeah, I don't want to be led by the Spirit. I just want to lead myself. Who, who, is anybody like that today? Do you want to admit that? Okay. 
I think that happened in our U.S. Congress lately, didn't it? <laughs> How many of you know everybody sitting by that guy just kind of went, Whoop. As followers of Christ, we have a desire to be led by the Holy Spirit, but we must not forget that the Holy Spirit might lead us out of our comfort zones, places that will challenge, test, and even prove us. Why is it that we tend to believe that if we are led by the Spirit, life will just go from one happy moment to the next happy moment? We kind of believe that, don't we? Somewhere deep inside us, we're like, if I'm walking in the Spirit, everything good is going to happen all the time, and nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. And there's truth in that because the Holy Spirit protects us, He leads us, He guides us, He keeps us out of danger. We, we understand that there's truth in that. But these scriptures remind us that the third member of the Trinity may have a purpose for us that involves challenges and tests. And remember that the will of God will never lead you to a place where the grace of God will not protect you. He's not going to lead you to destruction, but maybe a place that's not so comfortable in order to be proved and be tested. Another thing that's interesting in this portion of Scripture is how striking the contrast is between the glorious occasion of Jesus' baptism and the wilderness that the Holy Spirit immediately led him into. They're just like opposite spectrums. His baptism brought a refreshing in the waters of the Jordan River. Now he experienced fatigue and weariness, which is all the barren wilderness can ever offer. With his baptism came the big crowds, right? Now he was in solitude and surrounded in silence. In his baptism, the Spirit rested on him like a dove. Now the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. His baptism marked by the, was marked by the Father's voice saying, my beloved son, this is my beloved son in whom I, whom I am well pleased. Now, in the wilderness, it was the hiss of Satan's temptations. Through his baptism, or during his baptism, he was anointed. Now he was being attacked. The cool waters of baptism now the fires of temptation. His baptism caused the heavens to be opened, and in the wilderness it seemed that hell was open wide. Striking contrast between what he experienced in the waters of baptism and what he experienced in the wilderness, which was basically back to back. It seems to be a reoccurring event throughout Scripture, though, that if you are mightily used of God, you will often have a wilderness experience as a test immediately following your victory. I want you to let that sink in a little bit. Because sometimes we want God to use us in a mighty way. Praise God! I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and that's wonderful. But know that there could be some attacks right around the corner. When great things happen, it's not time to sit on your laurels spiritually and, and not pray and not seek his face. That's the time to really seek him so that you're ready for anything the devil may throw at you. I've thought about this so much. If something good, if something good comes out of 
my ministry or the, my personal ministry or the ministry uh, that, that, that is this church. And, and you, can, you can say the same thing, something that comes out of your personal ministry or the ministries that you do in this church. It's something wonderful. If you have a great victory, it's easy to just sit back and go, Praise God, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in his will, blah, 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 blah. But folks, I'm telling you, the second you do that, here comes that old snake ready to trip you up. Do you know how many people have a great victory of salvation only to, and, and they come down to these altars, they, they accept Christ, and then they walk right back out the door, and it's like the moment they, they, the moment they get out, of, out off this property or the moment maybe they even walk out the door, they start getting attacked. Might be thoughts, might be people coming against them, might be situations and circumstances. And I tell you what, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to get to the place in your walk with God when you start celebrating those attacks because you know you're messing with the devil and he don't like it. It's even more wonderful not to be in fear of those things because the will of God will never take you where the grace of God won't keep you. I think Pastor Jared said that a couple weeks ago. He's going to take care of you, even if it gets tough. But this reoccurring event throughout Scripture, that if you're mightily used of God, you will often have a wilderness experience as a test immediately following your victory. It's true. Abraham spent time in the wilderness after he yielded the better land to his nephew Lot. It was true of Moses, who upon killing the Egyptian, fled to Midian, and there he stayed for 40 years. It was true of the people of Israel. They were delivered from the Egyptians by Moses and then spent 40 years in the desert. You know, I thought about this as I wrote this. Uh, uh, Moses spent 80 years in the desert. No wonder he was the meekest man who ever lived. Wow. David spent time running in what could definitely be considered a wilderness after he killed Goliath. Saul was hunting him down. It was true of the prophet Elijah who had two wilderness experiences. John the Baptist spent many years in the wilderness before his public ministry began. And we see it in the life of the apostle Paul as well. Upon receiving his sight after being blind for three days, he was led into the desert for three years. So it really shouldn't shock us to see Jesus being led into the wilderness for testing, except for the fact that he was and is perfect. But don't forget that he denied himself those rights as deity. He remained fully God, don't get me wrong. But he, I put, this, I put it this way before, he didn't tap into those Jesus powers, those God powers. He lived as a man so he could be our example. And so we knew that we could follow his example. When we see great victories, don't get disheartened if they're followed by attacks and tests, church. Don't. Perfect circumstances, and hear me, perfect circumstances are not the evidence of God being on your side. Did you hear me? Perfect circumstances are not the evidence of God being on your side. God is on your side because his word says he is, and that's the end of it. Circumstances have nothing to do with it. 
He's on your side. Jesus felt the disparity of the wilderness. He understands. I think that's part of the reason why he was driven into the wilderness. He just had this glorious time of baptism. It was wonderful. I mean, the, the Father spoke in audible words from heaven. The Spirit came down and everybody could see it. It came like a dove and settled on him. It was a picture of the Trinity, of course. You had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once. It was a glorious moment. And now he's in the wilderness. He's in the disparity of the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness, don't waste time being angry with God or even depressed about why God wouldn't allow you to be, why God would allow you to be in this place. Just focus on God, give it all to him, and pass the test. You know, God chastises those he loves. Boy, there's a verse that we don't like very much. He chastises those he loves. Why? It's the same reason that too, who much is given, much is expected. It's the same reason that too much is given, he'll give him even more. Because when he tests you and proves you, and you prove yourself faithful, and you walk in that faithfulness, that, that power of the Holy Spirit that, that, that sustains you, he just gives you more and gives you more. You see, we, we, we like to tend to think that God's just this big genie in the sky. And if we go to church, it's like rubbing the lamp. And if we are nice to people, it's like rubbing the genie lamp. And then we can say anything we want. And maybe even, you know, I, I'm kind of a believer in, in name it and claim it, but I'm not to the point of blab it and grab it. Does that make sense? There's balance in everything. I think our words are extremely important, what we say. Extremely important. But we can't just walk around and name it and grab it and do all this stuff that we want to do without having the foundation of a life that's walked out in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about the first Adam for a second. Adam, you know, Adam and Eve, the first Adam. The Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam, and there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Pastor Jared, you should do a series on that sometime because I think that would be amazing, right? Adam's failure in the beautiful Garden of Eden brought with it sin, shame, sickness, and death. But Jesus' victory in that barren wilderness of temptation brought with it an assurance that we all can have through the power of the Holy Spirit, an assurance that we can all overcome and be victorious as well. Church, I'm looking at you today, and let me declare this, because the word of God is true. You are a victorious people. You are a victorious people. The victory has already been won. And just as one man's sin, the first Adam, affected all of humanity and shut the door on heaven, so the son of man, the second Adam, his sinlessness and complete victory over sin opens the door to heaven back up. That's why they call him the second Adam. One, one undid what the other one did. It was the Holy Spirit who gave Jesus power to overcome the temptation too, by the way. Remember that Jesus, although 100% God, was living as 100% human. I've, I've gone over that many times this morning already. He descended, uh, he, he depended, sorry, he depended on the Holy Spirit, and that is exactly what we need to do. 
And, and make no mistakes, the temptation that Jesus confronted in the wilderness, they're the same temptations that we will have to confront in this life. They were overcome by him through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they can be overcome by us through that same power. And I need to say this, oftentimes when we think about the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and we're going to get into those scriptures in just a second, when we think about it, we think, oh, what did Jesus do? He quoted the word, right? He quoted the word and he overcame the temptation. But I want to give you, I want to, I want to tell you something that I saw that I never really saw before, and I should have seen it. The fact that his temptation was right after the Holy Spirit came upon him says loud and clear that it was very, very important, very important that he was full of the power of spirit, of the spirit, so that when he quoted those scriptures, there was power behind his quotes. See, we just like to say scripture. Just quote scripture. The word of God does not return void. It's, it's powerful, and it is. I'm not taking anything away from scripture. But you know, the, the, the disciples tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name and couldn't do it. Why? Because they hadn't spent enough time in prayer. They hadn't gone to the boiler room, if you will, of power and prayed themselves up to the point that what they spoke was anointed and powerful. This is the same kind of thing. Jesus spoke the word. I mean, he is the word, right? This is the word speaking the word, which is really an interesting thing. But he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. So important for us to understand that. So what, what temptations did Jesus confront that we confront as well? And the first one is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Matthew 4, 2 through 4 says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, not during, after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why would I say it that way? Because I think Jesus was so full of the power of the Holy Spirit that he never even got hungry for 40 days and 40 nights. Because it was after the 40 days and 40 nights of fasting then he became hungry. How many can relate with that? If I keep preaching, you'll probably be able to relate with that after a while. Some of you had breakfast. Verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, isn't that just like the devil? He did that in the Garden of Eden too. What did God say? Did God really say, did, are, are you really the son of God? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here's him quoting the word, the word quoting the word, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lust of the flesh. Lust is, a, is simply an over-desire if you break down that word. The lust of the flesh is everything that appeals to our carnal and physical appetites. We all have appetites, and they're natural to us. I mean, some are even necessities. It's a good thing that we feel hunger. Otherwise, we'd starve sometimes. Those are natural, natural appetites. But our appetites and desires, and again, understand, they're not necessarily evil. Our appetite for food, drink, and even sexual fulfillment, they're not evil just inherently, okay? But when these are used by the devil to enslave us, gluttony, fornication, pornography, they become an over-desire that falls into the category of lust, lust of the flesh. 
Jesus is so full of the Holy Spirit that the Bible says that after, again, after 40 days and 40 nights of not eating, then he was hungry. And it's in those moments when we are the most vulnerable. We're just like this. We're vulnerable to the sins, uh, to sin's temptations. Jesus was alone. He was hungry, and I'm sure he was tired. Turn these stones into bread if you're really the Son of God. Why are you fighting your natural urges, Jesus? You're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Eat. Your body says eat. You should eat. And Satan does the same thing to us. Come on. Your body says yes, so it must not be wrong, right? Lust of the flesh. How do we defeat it? How many know that's, that's an enemy? The lust of the flesh is an enemy. It's not just a temptation. It's an enemy that we deal with. Every one of us. Don't know if I should share this or not, but I'm going to. My wife just said, oh no. <laughs> when I was in college, um, I didn't go to a Christian college. I went to a state school. And right outside our dorm, a men's dorm, there was this kind of this nice grassy field, open field. And when it was warm out in the early fall or in the late spring, we were still having school, the girls, the college girls, who uh, lived on campus or lived in the adjacent dorms would come down and lay out in their bikinis right below the guys' windows. That's not nice. <laughs> they could have laid out in front of their own windows and been in the sun, but they, here's their building, here's our building. They could have laid out in the field there. If they didn't, they laid out in the field over here. Why? Well, you know why. I don't even have to explain it. And if you walked along and you looked up at the, the, there's four stories to the dorm, if you looked at all the windows in the guy's dorm, I mean, there was one here, one here, one here, one here, one here. Gawking. My roommate and I were pretty new Christians at the time, and we decided that when we'd see stuff like that, we would have a planned response. So, you know, you're, you just go to the window, you get done from class, you go to the window, you open the window, and here's all these girls in bikinis. Now, you could either pull out the binoculars, you could sit there and gawk. We decided to just say, praise the Lord, and turn our heads. Praise the Lord for God's creation. Because we like it. I'm a guy, I'm a man, and I like girls. I like one now. But do you understand what I'm saying? I should say women, not girls. You gotta be careful what you say, right? I like female women. Woman now. I'm gonna get myself in lots of trouble if I keep talking. <laughs> Trying to say I don't have same-sex attractions. <laughs> I don't, and I'm proud of it, and it's okay. That's the lust of the flesh that says, I want that, I'm going after that. That's the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh is everywhere. When I was in high school, you couldn't find pornography if your life depended on it. But if you did, boy, it was a picture. They'd save it. You know, the guys that went to school, they'd save it. It'd be folded up in their, their wallet, and they'd, they'd pull it out in the locker room or something. And it, it, was, it was harder to find. Now every kid walks around with it in their pocket. Their phone. Your phone. Where's my phone? There it is. 
it's become so easy to feed the lust of the flesh today. And, and, and not just sexually, there's all sorts of lusts of the flesh. We deal with that. It's an enemy. Jesus dealt with it. He was full of the power of the Holy Spirit, and what did he do? He quoted the word, and because he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit, that word made a difference, and he defeated the temptation right there. We must take his example and do the same. The second thing, the second temptation he encountered was the pride of life, Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now the devil's quoting the word, right? He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written. Kind of like, shut your face, right? That's kind of what he's saying. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, the pride of, of, of life is anything and everything that appeals to your own sense of self-achievement. It's haughtiness and arrogance in reference to your own abilities. Look what I've created. I'm a self-made person. Look at my success. Pride of life screams, I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anyone. And if anyone had reason to follow this temptation, it was Jesus. After all, he was the son of God. He was on the throne previous to this, and he left it all because of his love for us. He had never sinned. He was perfect. He could have been prideful about that. He had lived perfectly for 30 years up until this point, or maybe just a little over. And Satan loves to trap us in our own pride, church, especially when we've been successful. It's so amazing how easy it is to pray for God to work something out for us and then take all the credit when he does it. Look at my savvy business skills. Look at my hard work. Look at my talent, my abilities. Guess what? All that's nothing without God. We are dependent upon him. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, I am dependent on him. I am dependent on him. Some of you aren't saying it. Does that mean you don't think you are? Come on. I am dependent on him. I mean, if you think you can get this stuff all done on your own, the only person you're fooling is yourself. Jesus, of course, is full of the Holy Spirit still, and he quotes the word of God again. Then there's the lust of the eyes. Matthew 4 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Lust of the eyes, church, is anything and everything that appeals to our physical eyes. We want a new house or a new car or our neighbor's wife or husband. And of course, it's okay to desire a comfortable home or a car that gets you safely to and from work, but when it's an over-desire, it's just lustful materialism. Desiring your neighbor's spouse is, is of course, wrong from, from the start. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no scenario where that's okay. There's nothing honorable or holy about that, but and it can lead to the lust of the flesh. 
So sometimes these overlap and one leads you into the other, but the lust of the eyes is, is anything and everything that appeals to our physical eyes. We want that. I want that. I need that. I gotta have that. It's an over-desire. Sometimes we even become depressed because we don't have it. I want that person's success in business. I want that person's ministry. I want that person's whatever. It's the lust of the eyes. And Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. He says, it's all yours, Jesus, if you just worship me. And you know what happens. Jesus is so full of the Holy Spirit. He commands Satan to leave, and he quotes the word of God again. And we have to do the same, church, if we're going to be, because we're tempt, when we're tempted in the same area, when we're being tempted by the, that old serpent, that snake, full of the Holy Spirit's power, ready to quote the word in power. And it's worth stating that, again, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit before he was tempted. He didn't have to get an emergency filling because temptation was already happening. Isn't that what we do sometimes? We're like, oh, this temptation came out of nowhere. Here it comes. Uh, what do I do? Quick, get full of God. And we live defensively rather than offensively in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it speaks volumes in reference to what most Christians do. They accept Christ with great joy. They love knowing that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They, they love knowing that they, have, that they are saved and they're heaven-bound. They, they love that. We all love that. But receiving Christ, it, church, it, it, it's the starting line. It's not the finish line. When we receive Christ, we are signing up for a life of battles as well as a life of adventure. And we are supposed to follow Christ's example in all things. Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is not optional if we are going to live as victorious followers of Christ. It's just not an option. You can't walk in victory if you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. It doesn't add up. We've got to understand that being empowered by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Hagios Numa, is an absolute must. It's, it's just absolutely essential. And let me be clear, we will get deeper into this over the next weeks, what that means to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit. But you receive, you've got to know this right now, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life when you accept Christ. He comes into your life. You can't receive Jesus as Savior unless the Holy Spirit's a part of that. He comes into your life the moment you accept Christ. All believers have the Holy Spirit inside of them. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here's the kicker. We can choose to listen to him. We can learn to hear his voice leading and guiding and comforting and teaching us. But just as, as salvation in Christ is and acceptance of his gift is, on the cross is a personal decision, so is choosing to walk in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit every single day. Why have the Holy Spirit living inside of me? Well, okay, great. Have you consulted him? Have you chosen to listen to him? Because it's not enough that, he, that, that we are his temple.
I mean, forever hearing and never doing, what if your kid always heard you every time you had something to say? And they always heard you, but they never did what you said. Anybody know a kid like that? <laughs> They're forever hearing, but never doing. Isn't that what God must have to deal with all the time with us? He's forever speaking. He's in us. He's inside of us. His presence dwells there, and we don't listen to him. We've got to choose to do that. We've got to foster that. We've got to work at that. He's in us, and we can silence his voice within us or we can hone in on it. It's really just about our daily decisions. Will we give him room to lead us as Jesus did? Because guess what? Every single one of you is tempted, probably daily, if for sure weekly, in the areas of lust of the flesh, pride of life, and lust of the eyes. Every single one of us. If you are not full of the power of the Holy Spirit, you will fall to those things. And you know what happens? We get in this weird kind of uh, vicious cycle. Okay, I fell to sin again. And then we ask God for forgiveness when we feel like it's been a long enough time where we can approach him, right? Some people repent right away. I think that's great. Some people self-loathe for a while. Oh, I'm just worthless. I'm no good. I sinned. And then we go to the Father and we hold out our hands so he can slap us. That's what we think. That's not what happens. And then we feel like we're doing okay. We're doing good again. We're doing good. You know what that vicious cycle is doing? It's putting you on the throne because it's dependent on what you do and not what he's already done. See, really what we need to do is get full of the Holy Spirit. I mean full of him every single day start your day out full of the spirit and when temptation comes your way you're not going to fall to it easily you know what happens when you stop falling to temptation easily and you're quoting the word to the devil when he brings that temptation in how many know the devil don't like getting beat up all the time temptation starts to subside it's not that it won't rear its ugly head once in a while but as you beat those temptations in the way that God designed us to beat those temptations, it's very interesting how the devil just kind of stops. I'll give you a great example. I used to love to drink. Loved to drink. Loved the taste of alcohol. Loved the taste of beer. Loved it. Used to be tempted with it after I came to Christ. But I don't remember the last time I really even thought about it. Wait a minute, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Tell that to my Jesus. Because it's not tempting. It's just not tempting to me. I mean, I can drink a big old glass of icy Kool-Aid on a hot day and be just fine. Or iced tea. Or diet soda. Or whatever. My question today is this. Will you give room for him to lead you? Will you get that foundation of being full of the Holy Spirit first? Because that's the beginning of it all. 
in our daily walks with Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We give you our hearts today. We give you our lives today, God. And your, your spirit, Lord Jesus, has everything we need to live out our life in the way that we're supposed to. I ask you today, God, that you would just burn this into our hearts. We pull up to the gas station regularly and fill our cars with gas so we can get from here to there. But Lord, often we forget that, that to spiritually fill up and be full of the power of the Holy Spirit so we can get from here to the next thing you have for us. Lord, we want to be a people of your presence, a people that just walks and brings your presence wherever we go. And church, if that's your heart, if you have that same heart that you want to be that, you know you can do better than that, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I want to do better than that. I, I can do better in that area. I can step into that area more than I've ever stepped into it before where I'm being led of the Holy Spirit. Everything that comes out of my mouth, everything that I do, every decision I make, all of it. God, you see these hands raised. I pray, Father, you'd fill them now in the name of Jesus. Fill them now. Lord, we love you. And we will walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.